Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, this series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss and some of the words they use to describe their experiences can be quite colorful. This program contains explicit language and descriptions of an adult nature. Listener discretion is advised. People in the public domain started demanding that I resign, that I quit, that I be thrown out because what on earth was somebody like that doing in the military? That as some kind of liability or as a danger to my colleagues if we went on operations. And there was this kind of misplaced belief that somehow I wasn't of value anymore, that all the skills and all the experience that I had from my previous years of service, which was at that point 18 years of service, knocking on 19, somehow didn't mean anything, that I was suddenly this liability or danger. I knew I had to prove them wrong. I had to prove uh, that that was wrong. This is Caroline Page. Hi, Caroline. Nice to meet you. Uh, Lovely to meet you, Sean, as well. And can I ask, if you don't mind, um, how old you are? At 27 and a half. Well, it's a very big half, which (laughs) kind of, yeah, uh, 61. Caroline is a pretty determined person. She's had to fight hard to get where she is today. But that fight hasn't made her bitter or angry. Far from it. When we speak... She's sitting in a cosy office surrounded by books and memorabilia. The wall behind her is filled with paintings of planes and helicopters soaring into the sky. But they're not just paintings. They're images of actual planes and jets that have taken Caroline all around the world into the murky depths of the Cold War and the conflict-scorched landscapes of Northern Ireland and Bosnia. Flying them is at the heart of who she is. And it's the story of what it took for Caroline to keep flying these machines and the personal and professional barriers she had to overcome that makes her history so fascinating. You're listening to Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer elders. I'm Sean Fay. Each episode, I'll be talking with an LGBTQ trailblazer who has something important, interesting or enlightening to say about what it means to be queer in the world today. By talking to older queer people, we want the stories in this series to create a sense of community across generational lines. By the end, our hope is that you have the language you need to grapple with new experiences by showing that you belong to a much broader history. In this episode, Caroline the Military Marvel. My dad was in the army, so he was a staff sergeant in the artillery um, and actually joined when he was 13. He joined as a boy soldier. So it's all he'd ever known, really. So he always had this uh, regimented way of living. And uh, I think my aunties used to mock us as his little soldiers because (laughs) we were all kind of regimented in the way that we did things. Very military, very military family. I'm I'm guessing it's the sort of typical military childhood in terms of moving around a fair bit and living near military bases. When I was born, I moved straight to Germany. I was born in Wallasey uh, on the Wirral. 
and I moved straight to Germany. Not that I knew it, obviously, <laughs> uh, but we travelled around with him. So we lived in uh, married quarters on the on the bases wherever he went. So I spent a lot of my young years either in Germany or in Malaysia, which was quite exciting. And um, when I was living in Malaysia, I kind of got a fascination with uh, helicopters because we lived next to this big field and the helicopters used to come in land and they were carrying stretchers and people that were hurt and things like that. And they fascinated me. And I think I was around the age of five to eight between those years. And I didn't realise how much of uh, an impression they made on me and how much they would influence my future life. Caroline was bitten by the military bug from this early age. But there was another side to her childhood one that made life in a traditional army family very difficult. There was two things that happened when we lived in, in Malaysia. The first one was the helicopters, but the most important one, I think, was the realisation that my gender identity uh, conflicted with everybody else's expectations. I identified uh, female, I identified as a girl, but um, I soon became aware that um, that wasn't acceptable within my family. Uh, my dad wasn't very impressed. I was just walking past my parents' room and my sister's dress was laid out on a bed and it it felt appropriate to me. I just went, ah, that looks really pretty. And I put it on and I was discovered by my dad and given a huge shouting at, dressing down. And that's when I realised I had to hide, begin hiding who I was. But that didn't, again, um, that didn't stop me from sharing private moments where I was able to be myself. Caroline spent her whole childhood restricting her true self to these small, secret moments. She'd wait until her family were asleep to wear her sister's nightie. She'd steal moments as Caroline while pretending to be sick off school. But in her teenage years, after her father left the army and the family moved back to their home on the Wirral, she found flying and a new way to express herself. I saw this poster up at school saying, adventure, adventure, adventure. And those memories of the helicopters drove me towards uh, joining the air cadets. And it was brilliant. It was the best thing I could have ever done. And I ended up doing a a pilot's course down at Cambridge, uh, gaining my private pilot's licence. Still as a teenager, uh, back home, and then I was flying my friends out of Liverpool Airport from from school. I couldn't drive a car, but I could fly aeroplanes. I was wondering, what is it about flying in particular that was special to you? The first time I was in an aeroplane on my own, at 2,000 feet, it was a beautiful day, blue skies, sunny, really sunny. Uh, and it was an open cockpit aeroplane, so it was just really quiet. Glider, it wasn't shifting very fast, so it was just really quiet and peaceful. And everything looked in the distance, you know, uh, all of the people in the cars below me kind of looked like toys and things. And it was just something that made me, for the first time, probably in my life, to be able to relax and just go, wow, this is great. And I didn't have any worries about uh, who I was and and getting caught and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And I wanted to do more of that. Uh, And the only way I could get into aviation in those days, my parents weren't very wealthy, I didn't have any money. And to go into the civilian aviation route cost a lot of money. There's no way I was going to do that. So the only way I was going to fly was to join the military. And I looked at the army and I looked at the navy um, but the best of the services uh, to me that appealed for flying, pure flying, was the Air Force. That's what took me in. <laughs> what it did give me was uh, a secure income and therefore a mortgage and therefore my own house. 
you know, moving away from home allowed me the sanctuary to be able to relax and be myself. So that was something that was incredible for me. I became a navigator on fast jet fighter aircraft doing air defence of the UK during the Cold War. The Cold War was full swing. This was the 80s, very early 80s. It was a very macho environment. Women weren't allowed to uh, fly aircraft within the armed forces in those days. So it was a very macho environment. And you can imagine a a fighter squadron being uh, the top uh, of the top gun kind of macho places to be. And so uh, I was a complete contrast in that at work and in that environment, uh, I had to be who everybody expected me to be. But when I got home, it was just kind of, and through the door, and relax, and be me, and just chill and read a book, and just be Caroline. The military banned LGBT plus service in those days, banned gay service, but the interpretation of the law was very much LGBT plus. Uh, And so if you were caught, you were thrown out, pretty much literally marched off the gate, out to the gate and said, bye. Um, and of course you were outed and I knew I'd lose my job, my income, my house, my parents, my friends. I'd lose absolutely everything. And that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on you. And it was a high pressure job. Uh, we were intercepting Soviet long range bombers at all times of day and night with no notice scrambles and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it was stressful in a life enough without having that fear of losing everything uh, every day if you made a mistake or said the wrong thing or somebody spotted a clue. You obviously were aware that you had a female identity and you were expressing that at home as you described. What did you know about, I suppose, what would have been called transsexual people at that time? Were you aware that there were other people that existed in the world like you? Or was it more of a solitary experience where you thought that you were the only one? Right through my childhood, I was the only one. And that's why I used to think that I was broken. I didn't see any evidence whatsoever of other people like me. And the first time, first person I ever became available was uh, a, a model called Tula, who um, she appeared on in one of the newspapers. And I was working in, I was, I was having lunch in the mess and the, and, and the officer's mess used to get all the different newspapers out and lay them on a the table. And you could go up after you've had a bit of food and go up and have a coffee and sit and read the newspapers. And I saw this um, article on her and I squirreled it away because I'd never seen anything like that before. And I squirreled it away to my room um, so that I could read it without people looking at me and thinking, why are you reading that? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. That was the first time I really uh, understood that there was a possibility for for change. Up until then, I'd always dreamt that there was going to be change. I'd always, always imagined change. And I, uh, without any evidence of that being possible, it was just something that I thought, one, hopefully one day when I wake up, you know, this will be a nightmare, all that kind of stuff. Having glimpsed that possibility for change, it was well over a decade before Caroline would have the chance to act on it. The Air Force was calling for volunteers for tactical trooping helicopters and the aircraft that I loved and flew was going out of service so it seemed a good opportunity so I volunteered that and I became a navigator and tactics instructor on helicopters and that was uh, fantastic. I went out to Northern Ireland, I went out to Bosnia during the war uh, in Bosnia in 95, I was with the United Nations but I was in my 30s and I was realising my life was passing me by. Everybody uh, thought I was amazing. I was doing this great job. They were very proud of me. But I wasn't proud of myself. I wasn't able to be myself. And it was hurting and it was getting harder and harder as life went on. And so I decided uh, I needed to do something about that. I told my sister first. And she lived up in Scotland, right up at uh, the top end of Scotland. And it just happened that we were flying on exercise up there. So she picked me up uh, one night and we sat uh, in her lounge with a, uh, a nice fire going, drinking lots of coffee. And it took me hours and hours and hours to get the courage to tell her. And she knew I was trying to tell her something and she kept gently asking, you could tell me what is it, what, what, do, you, what do you want to say? And I think it was about half past four in the morning uh, where I eventually said, OK, this is, this is me, this is what I need to do. Initially, Caroline thought the only way she could transition would be to leave the military. PVR, they call it, so uh, premature voluntary release, where you ask for permission to leave. And so I did that. But then I realised that I was losing everything because I've still got to tell my parents, I've still got to tell my family, so there's still a good chance of losing that. If I leave and I can't get employment outside, then I've, I'm not going to be able to afford the mortgage and therefore the house, so I lose my little sanctuary. And, uh, and I'd lose the job that I really, really enjoyed doing. I kind of looked back at a time when when women were first allowed to fly fast jets in the Air Force. And I was uh, I was on a, a base in Chivano, which was a tactical weapons unit. And our role was to take um, uh, trainee pilots from their advanced flying training and convert them with skills for advanced tactical flying before they went on to fly the big jets. And uh, female pilots, first female pilot came through and I flew with her. And she was under so much stress about being allowed to fly aircraft in the Air Force in this macho environment. And I ended up having a chat with her and she was ready to quit. 
um, because of the pressure she was under. And I managed to persuade her to to not do that. Just to you know, if you quit, then you you don't know if it would have all worked out. If you quit, they've won. And I was kind of reflecting back on that and thought, well, I'm in the same situation here. If I quit, if I leave, then they've won anyway, and I still lose everything. Caroline agonised over the conflict between the job she loved and the person she truly was for years, until, in early 1999, she decided to try and do something to resolve it. I laid my life bare to the medical officer, uh, and the first thing she did was clear her appointments for the rest of the day, and we sat down and talked. And she became uh, a wonderful ally. Uh, I couldn't have picked, asked for a, a better person to respond as she did. And at the same time, there was a lady in the army doing the same thing, Joanne Wingate. And uh, so between the two of us, we were challenging uh, for our right to serve openly whilst the ban was still in place. It was a bold move and an anxious wait. Caroline's case was taken to the top of the Air Force and officials held her future in their hands. Fortunately, the army turned around to Joanne first and said, yes, you can uh, you can serve, followed by the Air Force with me saying, yes, you can serve. And that was just absolutely amazing. It was just that realisation that I was secure, I was safe, because by having the job, I was I had the means to look after myself. I had my sister in support, and I could do the job that I really loved doing and did really well and was quite respected for. So that was a huge turnaround in my life. Caroline got permission to transition and keep her role in the RAF. And a year later, in 2000, the ban on LGBTQ people in the military was lifted. But it was still a struggle to live openly as a transgender woman in the forces. It's very much one thing, uh, the sort of senior commanders turning around saying, yes, you can stay and given that authorization. But if you're working in a place which has been told for decades that LGBT plus people aren't welcome in service, you can't expect people to change their minds overnight without some kind of awareness or um, as to why that should be. So I faced quite a lot of hostility. It was something that was done to a lot of trans people until quite recently by the tabloids in the UK. It was trans people who weren't public figures would be outed um, with big splashes. You had it in the military. I know that people, there were um, vicars who were transitioned in the church and there would be these big exposés. Um, that's potentially life ruining. That experience when it happened to you, could you explain a bit about like how you felt when the sun outed you in 2000? Uh, what happened was... Uh, my boss called me into his office and said, I've been approached by the Ministry of Defence. The Sun newspaper has got your story and it's going to go to print. And I'd been serving openly as Caroline for 15 months at that point. Um, and I kind of naively thought that I'd got away with being exposed in the papers and things like that. But clearly I hadn't. And somebody had sold my story. So having been warned that it was going to go into print... I asked what the story was. I asked them what was it actually saying about me. And the answer came back with this, the usual kind of stories that you, as you quite rightly just said, about trans people, that how they're uh, portrayed in the media. And it wasn't a very positive portrayal at all. And so I said, um, well, that's not fair on me. Why can't I 
be given the opportunity to put my side of the story across because what they're printing isn't true. So I went up to London and I did an interview with the chief editor and he had already written the story in his head. Um, I could see that. And so he was asking me questions, but he was just doodling on his notepad. But then I started kind of interacting with him and joking with him and just showing them I was just a person, you know, a regular person. And he all of a sudden put pen down and said, right, I'm going to change tack on this. Uh, can I do it as a human interest story? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So he then listened and he rewrote the article. And actually, for an article coming out then, it was quite a positive article. It still had a few sort of sensationalist bits on it, which I didn't like, but it was considered quite a positive article. My sister and I had told my parents and my brothers. And they were so embarrassed that they banned me from telling the rest of my family. They said, this news cannot get out. And they stuck their heads in the sand. So the first thing that my wider family knew was reading about it on the front page of the newspaper. And so I never had any opportunity to explain anything to them. It was just there in their face. And it split my family completely in half. There was one half who were really supportive and they were angry with my parents that they'd kept this secret for 15 months uh, and not given them the opportunity to support me. The other half of my family wanted me dead, effectively, that's what they said. And unfortunately, that included my parents and my brothers, so I never got to speak to my parents or brothers again. And it wasn't just family members who refused to speak to Caroline once she'd been outed. Once, Caroline was called in to teach some helicopter tactics to a unit, which included some of her old friends from her first days in the Air Force. But when I walked into the room, they all turned their backs to me. And as I walked around the room, the backs kept turning. I sat there and tried to figure out what my next step was, which was not to give in. Uh, I never do that. But what I um, did was realise that I didn't, I didn't want to force my uh, circumstances into their lives. So I decided to leave it to my friends to get in touch with me rather than me push into my friends' lives. But despite all this hostility, Caroline held her nerve. She was determined to make the military a better place for people like her. I decided to go out and do talks uh, to units and I saw really positive change. People started coming up to me and saying, thank you ever so much for telling me that because it's allowed me to uh, make an informed opinion and uh, and I'm ever so sorry that I had this negative reaction when I first heard that you were serving in the military, uh, but I didn't know any better. So the military transformed into this wonderful place where it is now, which is openly inclusive. Um, and it's been so for a good uh, 10 years or so now where it marches on pride, LGBT plus people and their allies are able to march on pride in uniform in London. And that is uh, something that I never, ever, ever expected to see when I joined 40 years ago. But what's the one thing that you sort of say to younger LGBTQ people who might have similar career aspirations or whatever to you? Don't let negative opinions and voices ruin your life for you. You've got every right and um, 
you've got every chance to go off and do things as anybody else. My experience is that the people who are against you, who are negative, who um, have these prejudices, are very much the minority. Wherever I've been, they've been a minority, but because they're given the space to be so vocal and loud, you hear them and you don't hear the, the, the support around you. The support around you tends to be quite silent. People don't feel a need to be able to shout out about how supportive they are of you. So you get the wrong idea, you get the wrong impression, and you're thinking, it's a really hostile world, I'm not going to have a chance in this because everybody hates me. That's not true. These are difficult times. Do what's best for you in these times and hang on to the fact that there's light at the end of the tunnel and we are getting there look forward to a happier future and keep that happier future in your head. You've been listening to Call Me Mother, produced by Novel and supported by the Audio Content Fund. This series is presented by me, Sean Fay. It was produced and edited by Thomas Curry and Pippa Smith. Our executive producers were Max O'Brien and Sean Glynn. This episode was mixed by Joel Cox. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.